It's Friday, July 23rd, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm Yeri Jero, the host of America's world class web game, Empire Jeopardy! Today's contestants, he's a vertical urban farmer from battered Washington. Meet Jack Browndart. How's it going, Jack? It's growing, Mr. Jero. Up and up and up. He's the commander of former intelligence in Syncom Dread Sent AFPAC in Hintsville, Arkansas. Meet Lieutenant Colonel Butter Braunschweig. Colonel, what is Syncom Dread Sent AFPAC? Well, it wasn't in long enough to find that out, Yuri. She's a loan denier for Windjammer Gogol in Jockey Shorts, Illinois. Meet Swendaloo Zimmer. Working hard, Swendaloo? Saying no is becoming a real growth business, Mr. Joe. Well, the rules are as simple as our contestants. Win two and we talk. Lose two and you walk. Tie and you try again next time. Here we go. 221,943,567. What's a number large enough to confuse people? Uh, what is the cost of a B1 stealth fuselage? What is the number of barrels of oil that BP has spilled into the Gulf as of an hour ago? One for you, Jack. I see you stay on top of things. Okay, here we go again. Hiding billions of dollars of debt by not selling what you don't want until you get it back. What is window dressing? That was fast, Swindaloo. Easy. I used to date one of the Lehman brothers when I worked at B of A. Well, we're down to it now. Swindaloo and Jack, maybe we talk. Butter Braunschweig, maybe you walk. Yeah. Here it is. Red Cloak for breakfast. What's the latest gluten-free diet? What is taking an early meeting with the Cardinal? What is the Hopi symbol of the cataclysmic purification of America? Bingo! <laughs> yeah, we talked about it all the time at Dread Sand. Well, you get to talk some more about it because you tied it up and you'll all be back next time on Empire Jeopardy! I'll bring a PowerPoint with me. It's Friday. That means it's best of the best for the weekend, and it just keeps getting better. Here's some good news from Barney Frank and Ron Paul. They're doing it together. The crack in the dike has appeared in the military budget dike. Here's what they say, as reported in The Huff. As members of opposing political parties, we disagree on a number of important issues, but we must not allow honest disagreement over some issues to interfere with our ability to work together when we do agree. By far the single most important of these is our current initiative to include substantial reductions in the projected level of American military spending as part of future deficit reduction efforts. For decades, the subject of military expenditures has been glaringly absent from public debate. Yet the Pentagon budget for 2010 is $693 billion more than all other discretionary spending programs combined. Even subtracting the cost of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, military spending still amounts to over 42% of total spending. We're killing ourselves! It is irrefutably clear to us that if we do not make substantial cuts in the projected levels of Pentagon spending, we will do substantial damage to our economy and dramatically reduce our quality of life. Not to mention the reduction of life quality that the military is engaged in all over the planet. 
We are not talking about cutting the money needed to supply American troops in the field, and we are not talking about cutting essential funds for combating terrorism. Immediately after World War II, America took on the responsibility of protecting virtually every country that asked for it. 65 years later, we continue to play that role long after there is any justification for it. And currently, American military spending makes up approximately 44% of all expenditures worldwide. Europeans boast about their social model with its generous vacations and early retirements, its national health care systems and extensive welfare benefits, contrasting it with the comparative harshness of American capitalism. Europeans have benefited from low military spending protected by NATO and the American nuclear umbrella. We believe that the time has come for a much quicker withdrawal from Iraq than the president has proposed. We both voted against that war, but even for those who voted for it, there can be no justification for spending over $700 billion of American taxpayers' money on direct military spending in Iraq since the war began. In order to create a systematic approach to reducing military spending, we have convened a sustainable defense task force consisting of experts on military expenditures that span the ideological spectrum. The task force has produced a detailed report with specific recommendations for cutting Pentagon spending by approximately $1 trillion over a 10-year period. Mm, Man, we can go back to work and green ourselves up good with a trillion dollars. It calls for eliminating certain Cold War weapons and scaling back our commitments overseas. In the short term, rebuilding our economy and creating jobs will remain our nation's top priority. But it is essential that we begin to address the issue of excessive military spending in order to ensure prosperity in the future. Yeah, our kids, our grandkids are going to be carrying this crippling burden of military expenditure. We've got to take that burden off their backs. We may not agree on what to do. This is Barney and Paul talking now. We may not agree on what to do with the estimated $1 trillion in savings. But we do agree that nothing either of us cares about deeply will be possible if we do not begin to face this issue now. Hooray for Barney and hooray for Ron. Hello, egg eaters. I'm Ollie, the California egg, and I'm guaranteed free by Arnold the Governor. Yep, me and my Humpty Dumpty bros popped out of a happy hen. That's right. Mom can stretch out her wings without touching another hen. Ooh, they hate that. Or the wires of the cage. And that's a setting. And a standing up. Which is hard to do if you're an egg. So <laughs> ovophiles everywhere, free your inner chicken. Eat us. We're freedom eggs from the hens that laid the golden state. Now let's see if we can liberate Mama Sal. And baby calf. And Mr. Goose. Liver. This message not brought to you by the international cruelty to food industry. This screed about your health is written by Dr. Joseph Mercola in the Huff and Puff. Aspartine is the most controversial food additive in history. Its approval for use in food was the most contested in FDA history. In the end, the artificial sweetener was approved not on scientific grounds, but rather because of strong political and financial pressure. Uh huh. Aspartine was previously listed by the Pentagon as a biochemical warfare agent. Sold commercially under names like NutraSweet, Candorel, and now AminoSweet, aspartame can be found in more than 6,000 foods, including soft drinks, chewing gum, tabletop sweeteners, diet and diabetic foods, breakfast cereals, jams, sweets, vitamins, prescription, and over-the-counter drugs. Aspartame producer Ajinamoto 
Now, Ajinomoto is Japanese for monosodium glutamate, another dangerous chemical. They used, or still use, so much Ajinomoto in Japan that they named a huge corporation after it. And guess what? It also turns out aspartame. Yep. Well, they're going to rebrand it, though. These guys just, just want to give it another name, another spin, under the name Amino Sweet. To remind the industry, this is a quote, that aspartame tastes just like sugar and that it's made from amino acids, the building blocks of protein that are abundant in our diet. Yeah, but that's a terrible name for a product. Honey, can I have another amino sweet in my coffee? I just don't think that's going to fly. And you're not going to fly very far if you put a lot of that amino sweet in you. Ajinomoto's agenda is to make you believe that aspartame is somehow a harmless natural sweetener made with two amino acids that are essential for health and present in your diet already. Not. They want you to believe aspartame delivers all the benefits of sugar and none of its drawbacks, but nothing could be further from the truth. There have been more reports to the FDA for aspartame reactions than for all other food additives combined, over 10,000 official complaints in all, but by the FDA's own admission, less than 1% of those who experience your reaction to a product ever reported. So in all likelihood, the toxic effects of aspartame may, be, may have affected roughly a million people already. And you got to remember, too, that... Uh, doctors are not hip to this, so they may not be diagnosing uh, symptoms from aspartame. They may be, you know, giving it a whole nother name. While a variety of symptoms have been reported, almost two-thirds of them fall into the neurological and behavioral category, consisting mostly of headaches, mood alterations, and hallucinations. Honey, can I have some more of that amino sweet? Those little guys with the melty hats coming out of the wall are telling me to do it. One of the reasons for this side effect, researchers have discovered, is because the phenylalanine and aspartame disassociates from the ester bond. While these amino acids are indeed completely natural and safe, they were never designed to be ingested as isolated amino acids in massive quantities, which in and of itself will cause complications. You know, it's just do it, modern science, throw the white coats at it, we'll find out if it kills people later. Ajinamoto. That might be Japanese for... Just eat it. Additionally, this will also increase dopamine levels in your brain. This can lead to symptoms of depression because it distorts your serotonin-dopamine balance. It can also lead to migraine headaches and brain tumors through a similar mechanism. The aspartic acid in aspartame is a well-documented excitotoxin. Excitotoxins are usually amino acids such as glutamate and aspartate. These special amino acids cause particular brain cells to become excessively excited to the point that they die. Yeah, on the street, what I heard about aspartame, which I think also is taken from grapefruits, is that it causes brain fever. It heats up your brain. The problem is our excessive demand for the sweet taste. It's one of the root causes of the obesity crisis in America. Maybe we should declare a war on fat, a war on obesity, the way we declare a war on everything else that threatens our American dream lifestyle. But wait a minute. Sugar is the American dream. 
My friend Jerry Wild back in Los Angeles sent me this. You know, you get lists of funny things, emails all the time, and sometimes they're this and sometimes they're that. But these are good. This is the Washington Post Mensa Inventational, which once again asked readers to take any word from the dictionary, alter it by adding or subtracting or changing one letter and supply a new definition. Here are the winners. Ready? All right. I'm ready. I'm ready. Castration. The act of buying a house, which renders the subject financially <laughs> impotent for an indefinite period of time. <laughs> castration. Yeah, cash-tration. we are suffering good from castration. All, right. uh, All right. Number two. Ignore anus. A person who's both stupid and an asshole. <laughs> ignore anus. Right. Ignorant. Yeah. He's an ignorant. Yes, yes. Uh, intoxication. Euphoria at getting a tax refund, which lasts until you realize it was your money to start with. <laughs> in tax, in taxification. Yeah, in taxification sounds oh. like you know, sounds like getting drunk inside a cab in New York. But yeah. I, I guess not. Go no, ahead. That's, okay, that's another one. Bozone, the substance surrounding stupid people that stops bright ideas from penetrating. The bozone layer, unfortunately, shows little sign of breaking down in the near future. <laughs> I think they're all bozones on this bus. They right? certainly are. All okay. Right. Foreploy. Any, misrepresenta- any misrepresentation about yourself for the purpose of getting laid. That's, that's a foreploy. <laughs> foreploy. I like it. Uh, hi, honey. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Here's one. Giraffiti. Vandalism spray painted very, very high. Giraffiti. It's not bad. It's cute. You can tell your kids that one. Right? Yeah, well, not all of them. Yeah, that must uh, be in, in the big cities. Yeah. And the other one becomes inoculate, to take coffee intravenously when you are running late. (laughs) (laughs) Many, many do that here in this part of the country. And and the funny thing is, is that generally people who join Mensa have no sense of humor whatsoever. That's the surprising thing here. Usually they're just, they're, they're, they're the nerdiest nerds of all the nerds. But hey, this is good stuff. Well, the medical marijuana market is now legal in 14 states and is being seriously considered by 12 others, which may benefit sick people. In fact, it does benefit sick people, but it has proved a headache for regulators. Well, maybe they ought to smoke some some do to get rid of that headache. Because here's their headache. Unlicensed dispensaries, crooked doctors, and fake medical need cases have plagued early adopters like Colorado and California. For states that want the benefits of medicinal weed without the threat of a freewheeling pot culture, New Jersey may have found the answer. State control. Why is that always the answer from government? I'll tell you what we need here. We need some more fine, homegrown, uh, shade-cultivated state control. Yeah, it may not be a good answer, but (laughs) it's an answer. Governor Chris Christie recently approved a law allowing prescription marijuana, but he has put it on hold while he explores making Rutgers University the sole grower and state-approved hospitals the sole suppliers. This first-of-a-kind idea has drawn fire from patient advocates who worry that an official monopoly would limit both the variety of herb and the number of outlets, making it harder for people to fill their doctor's orders. Yeah, you got to go to the hospital, get some of that Rutgers boo. We'll talk about that in a minute. But as Colorado and California struggle to rein in their markets retroactively, the New Jersey model may emerge as a politically attractive middle ground. I really fear those terms. Politically attractive middle ground. There's something phony about that. This is a way a lawmakers, they say, can look cool, but not soft. 
I kind of like cool and soft, but it's just a personal taste. The state's example could catch on, said a Christie spokesman, if we do this right. Yeah, fat chance that will happen. Okay, Rutgers is a fine university. It's, it's one of the oldest colleges in America, but it is not known for growing killer weed. And that's what medical marijuana is in California. Totally killer gauge. One puff, that's enough stuff. Unless Rutgers calls in the lads from Northern California who know how to bolt that sensimia, the U is going to be turning out nothing but sticks and seeds. And the New Jersey governor doesn't get it. Medical marijuana is supposed to be administered with as much latitude and laxity as possible. That's why Obama told the DEA to put busting medical marijuana facilities at the very bottom of their list. Grass isn't a gateway to heroin, as the old accepted wisdom goes, but medical marijuana is a gateway to the total decriminalization of the plant. You know, sometimes the New York Times obituaries, which (laughs) being an elderly gentleman as I am, I always read, hoping not to find any of my friends. Or yourself in it. Or myself. I found myself in the New York Times uh, obituary. Oh, boy. But on July 13th, the whole page of the obituary, two very famous people in in kind of our world, Harvey Pekar, the uh, American Splendor guy, Mm -hmm. died at 70. Right. And... Tuli Kupferberg, 86, the great bohemian, one of the founders of the Fugs. He did find it. He, he, he found it. He was them. the guy. And, you know, I had to go to my record library where I pulled out the Fugs, the original two albums. And here's Ed Sanders and Tuli and Ken Weaver and the rest of the guys singing Kill for Peace. <laughs> group Grope. Frenzy, dirty old man, and uh, uh, and those wonderful William Blake things that Sanders did, Supergirl, and Seize the Day, and Boobs a Lot. Those were great records, man. We couldn't play any of them on the radio. Well, I did. Remember what happened to me? I played Johnny Pissoff on KMET in, in Los Angeles, dedicated it to the FCC, and got fired. One of my many firings from radio. So I have to thank Thule for that. You want to tell us a little bit about well, this? Well, he, he was. Uh, He's, he was 86, as I said, and uh, he'd been in poor health for quite a while. Uh, he was a guy who who uh, was always a bohemian in New York. He got into New York. As a matter of fact, his whole story is told in a wonderful book called The Beats, A Graphic History, which the text of which is written by Harvey Picard. Oh, really? So I suggest taking a look at, at that if people want to know any more. The, uh, the, the, the Fugs... Um, First album was released in 1965. Cooperberg uh, was the, like uh, their their harlequin, their clown. Their you know, this guy had been around on the streets of Greenwich for Greenwich Village for so long, and when I met and interviewed him, he was just he was a just a great figure, almost because he was so much older than I was. You know, like a legend, like a legendary guy. Yeah. So um, so yeah yeah I'll read a poem of his uh, at the end. Of the show today. But Harvey. Now, you- Harvey Picar, believe it or not, graduated like myself from Shaker Heights High School in 1957. Yeah, really, Harvey. Wow. He, was, he was something then. And the thing that's amazing about Harvey, not only did he stay in Cleveland, he went blue collar from the get go. He had a job in, you know, just a, a file clerk in the cancer ward and stayed there the whole time and developed this extraordinary career as an underground. Uh, uh, 
textural artist, you know. Yeah, writer. he wasn't the cartoonist. No, he, he, had, he, he, he wrote the libretto. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then R. Crumb came in, or another artist came in and did the pictures. Yeah, well, here's, the, here's my story with R. Crumb and, 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 and Harvey, mm-hmm. is that um, when I was in Cleveland, one of the jobs I had was at American Greeting Cards, which is a huge greeting card company. And they'd started this kind of like offshoot called a hi-hat which was their funny cards, mm-hmm. right? And I was working there and, you know, team around the table making up these funny cards. And uh, I'd been there like a week or so. Already turned out a really dandy card. I remember <laughs> it said, uh, showed a guy in a graduation gown and said, uh, you're graduating, you're prepared for the future, your eyes are bright, your your jaw is firm, you open up and your fly is open. You know, yeah, great, <laughs> huh? But so a lot. So uh, uh-huh. then about a week in, two weeks in, they come give me this piece of paper from Human Resources to sign. And at the bottom of the employment, for I have to sign a loyalty oath. I am not now, never have been a member of the United States, anything that overthrew the, overthrow the United States government, et cetera, et cetera. I yeah. said, no, I won't do this. So they, they put pressure on me to do it. And the next day I showed up, or two days later, I showed up in, in an army helmet and a fake rifle, and I, and I went around the room guarding the room against communists. I was out. You were gone. And you know who took my, took my place? R. Crumb. Yeah, yeah, he was, ne- <laughs> he was next in line. So anyway, with Harvey... You know, a uh, famous curmudgeon, right? So I went back for my 50th uh, at Shaker Heights High School, and I called him ahead of time from here because I'd kept in contact with him. I said, Harvey, you're going to be at the uh, reunion. Why should I go to the reunion? I said, well, you know, okay, well, let me come by. I'll say hello. Why do I want to see you? I said, okay, that's it, Harvey. I said, you can do the whole curmudgeon thing for the rest of the world. You can make a fortune being a curmudgeon. I don't care. Maybe your girlfriend likes it in bed. It's me, Peter Bergman. Stop it. Okay, come on over. So I went over. We spent some time. His lovely wife, who really was kind of like making his world for him, right? Mm -hmm. And we went and talked. And he's one of the sweetest people in the world. And to my mind, one of the most unusual, dedicated, and pure artists we've ever had. Well, Um, there's two of them together. And they're on the same bus. Yes, they They're are. The and they place. are going to beat heaven. Oh, my home. Yeah, they, well, they, they beat the rap, and now they're going to beat heaven. Here's another one about the folly called the Republican Party. Why do I spend so much time talking about the Republican Party and all of its, all of its wing nuts? Because they're constantly showing us what, <laughs> what the extremes of, 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 of bad politics can be. The Democrats, they have their problems, but they're busy at work trying to solve things. And the Republicans are coming up with these like empty, stupid plans that keep coming a cropper. And I believe that before the midterms, people are finally going to figure out who they are and who they aren't. See, according to uh, Talking Points Memo, Republicans have tried time and again to cast themselves as more than a disloyal minority, introducing policy ideas, rebranding efforts, and other gimmicks. All of them have quickly fizzled and been swept into the dustbin, never to be mentioned again. Oh, whether this latest effort stands the test of time or not, we'll talk about that in a second, is an open question. But with this in mind, here's a highlight reel of failed Republican Renaissance ideas. And these are all fairly recent. The first we'll call, or they called, the change you deserve. This one goes back more than two years when the slim Democratic majority in Congress was going toe-to-toe on a daily basis with the Bush administration, and Republicans were in free fall. Republican leadership created a new message— Change you deserve. Through our change you deserve, House Republicans will offer real solutions for the challenges they confront every day, read a memo sent to Republican House members of the time. Sadly, it turned out change you deserve was the registered marketing slogan for the antidepressant Effector XR. (laughs) 
Republicans were pummeled in a landslide election later that year. <laughs> I don't think there's anything antidepressing about the Republicans. You have to take antidepressants just to think about them. Okay, number two, hip-hop GOP. Michael Steele took a stab at creating a new GOP. Quote, we want to convey that the modern-day GOP looks like the conservative party that stands on principle, Steele told the Washington Times, but we want to apply them to urban-suburban hip-hop settings. I love this man. <laughs> he's such a goofball. But, yeah, it's, but he is he's a kind of a charming goofball. Suburban hip-hop GOP. Now, th there's a musical there and a reminder that the Republicans have saddled themselves with a true eccentric in Michael Drill, Baby Drill Steele. I mean, here's the guy who kind of like, he's a bit of an idiot savant. He actually speaks from time to time, or maybe all the time, what's on his mind. Uh, can't win the war in Afghanistan. True, he said it. Everybody else in the party is probably thinking it, but he says it. All right, so what about this, this new uh, hip-hop GOP? It will be avant-garde technically, Steele posited. What? Avant-garde technically? It will come to the table with things that will surprise everyone. Off the hook. He's beginning to sound like Alvin the Man Green. For good measure, I won't do cutting edge. That's what Democrats are doing. We're going beyond cutting edge. And then he stomped off to take cool pictures with his interns. I'm not doing cutting edge. I'm going beyond cutting edge. You go, Michael. Number three, we'll call it, or they call it, Cantor's Comeback. After Change You Deserve died and Obama swept into office, Republicans created a new initiative. The National Council for a New America, the NCNA, was the brainchild of Eric Cantor, long engaged in a leadership struggle with minority leader John the Sultan of Suntan Bomer. Meant to, this is meant to counter the, par, the Democrats' party of no mantra. One ingredient that may have spoiled that effort, Republicans continued voting no on everything. Another spoiler, it may have violated House ethics rules and the NCNA was disbanded after about a year. Mm, goodbye, bad idea number three. Here's number four, the budget that wasn't. In March 2009, just after Obama took office, the Democrats put together an ambitious one. Now, now look, the ambitious, very ambitious budget. Not to be outdone, Republicans decided to drop a plan of their own, except what they unveiled was an 18-page glossy white paper of ideas with no actual budget numbers. Remember that? Made, made them the laughingstock of both wonks and Democrats everywhere. In fact, it made them a laughingstock of anybody who took a look at that guy standing up there with, you know, like five or six pieces of paper in his hand saying, here's the new plan, here's the new budget. What does it say? Well, we're not sure. Number five, the budget that might have been. Then Paul Ryan, House Republicans' top budget guy, put together a series of policy changes, tax and entitlement cuts that he claimed would bring America into fiscal balance over the course of, of a decade. And he dubbed it Roadmap for America's Future. It's a real GOP kind of thing. Roadmap for America's Future. Here we go. The roadmap made a splash when it was first unveiled, praised by conservatives, and held forth by Democrats as a serious but flawed Republican plan to slash Medicare. So, of course, since the Democrats had something good to say about it, Republicans ran away from it. Then experts took a look at it and concluded that it would probably wreck the economy uh, if it was ever enacted. So, so much for new ideas and new faces. 
Give it up, NOP. Give it over to the only Republican to almost win a beauty contest. Of course, I'm talking about Mama Mussolini. She's the teabagger's pinup and the best-dressed demagogue since Eva Perone. Let her lead. It doesn't matter. You have nowhere to go. Hello. This is Melody Moneypenny speaking for your friendly music licensing people at ASCAP BMI. Have you been singing or whistling a popular song in public? (laughs) As the saying goes, that's entertainment, and it will cost you real money. That's right. In your home, in your hometown, online, we've got our tune goons watching and waiting. Your performance is what we call a cover, and since we own every song you've ever heard, each cover is chargeable to you at an average rate of $500 per listener. And in case you think that fee goes to the composer, don't make that mistake again. These fees go to pay our tune goons, accountants, and executives. So the next time you and your gang want to sing Sympathy for the Devil at the street fair, think again, because we're behind the bushes waiting to catch you having a good time at our expense. For a permit, please contact Big Brother at yourscrewedagain.com. Yeah. 
Factory workers demanding better wages and working conditions are hastening the eventual end of an era of cheap costs that helped make southern coastal China the world's factory floor. A series of strikes over the past two months have been a rude wake-up call for the many foreign companies that depend on China's low costs to compete overseas, from makers of Christmas trees to manufacturers of gadgets like the iPad. Where once low-tech factories and scant wages were welcomed in a China eager to escape isolation and poverty, workers are now demanding a bigger share of the profits. Also, China's putting money into the hinterland, and people are saying, I don't want to live here in southeast uh, China where they speak Cantonese and everybody is being you know, exploited by Americans and Koreans and Japanese. I want to go home to whatever my unpronounceable village is, and back they go, which, of course, reduces the labor and makes it more expensive to find the people you need. Many companies are striving to stay profitable by shifting factories to cheaper areas further inland or to other developing countries. And a few are even resuming production in the West. They're coming home. The bastards who took our jobs away are coming home because the days of slave labor are ending in China. Why don't we wait for them at the dock as they arrive and hand them a massive tax bill for all the honest work they shipped abroad. China is going to go through a very dramatic period. Uh, the big companies are starting to exit. We all see the writing on the wall, said Rick Goodwin, a China trade veteran of 22 years whose company links foreign buyers with Chinese suppliers. Yeah, the writing's been on the wall for a while, but the Gaijins couldn't read it because it was in Chinese. Uh, let me look at it. Let me translate it for you. It says, round-eyed exploiters, go home and screw over your own. Goodwin goes on to say, I have 15 major clients. My job is to give them the best advice I can, and I tell it like this. I tell them, 
Put your helmet on. It's going to get ugly. Beijing's decision to stop tethering the Chinese currency to the U.S. dollar, allowing it to appreciate and thus boosting costs in yuan, has multiplied the uncertainty for companies already struggling with meager profit margins. We had to deal with them, you know. Depress the yuan, we'll buy lots of stuff, keep it cheap, we'll give you money, we won't tell on you, and we won't even mention the fact that you are a totalitarian, torture-prone regime. No, it'll just be okay. In an about-face, whammo! The company that created the hula hoop and the slip and slide decided to bring half of its Frisbee production and some production of its other products back to the U.S. Well, what do you know? The Frisbee originated on the Yale campus when undergraduates sailed Frisbee pie company plates uh, across the freshman commons is coming home. My question is, why did we let it go in the first place? All in the name of free market capitalism. You know, the only thing free about free market capitalism is that corporations are free to live off a morally corrupt American tax system while they exploit workers abroad and flood us with cheap and often useless goods. I'm going to go back to Yale, find myself a couple of Frisbee pies, and sail away from this whole sad situation. Well, there's more news. Life science companies have shifted some production back to the U.S. from China. In some cases, the U.S. was becoming cheaper, said Sean Carl, director of consulting services for Burlington Mass-based uh, Importus. That may soon become true for publishers, too. Uh, printing a 9-by-9-inch, 334-page hardcover book in China costs about 44 to 45 cents now, with another 3 cents for shipping, says Goodwin. The same book costs 65 to 68 cents to make it in the United States. If costs go up by half, it's about the same price as the U.S., and you don't have to wait 30 days on the water for shipping, he says. Well, okay. It's easy enough for me to shout, bring the jobs back home. But who's going to go to work in the factories when the jobs come back? The entitled generations who have watched three decades of TV where no one works? Um, they just consume and natter away about who's dating whom? No, we have no will for work that is not supported by the national culture, and the national culture support system is TV and the Internet. Our national heroes are the Kardashian sisters, whose only work is getting their nails done and their pictures taken hanging around the club or the pool doing absolutely nothing. It's the immigrants who will take the jobs, not from us, but by default, because we've traded in the lunchbox for the Xbox. In its most recent survey issued last February, restructuring firm Alex Partners found that overall China was more expensive than Mexico, India, Vietnam, Russia, and Romania. Mexico in particular has gained an edge thanks to the North American Free Trade Agreement and fast, inexpensive trucking, and dangerous trucking, says Mike Romeri, the executive with Importus, the consulting firm. Makers of toys and trinkets, Christmas trees, and cheap shoes already have folded by the thousands from China and moved to Vietnam, Indonesia, and Cambodia. The problem is these countries lack the huge workforce, infrastructure, and markets that China can offer, and most face the same labor issues as China. And let's not forget, oh, just a few years ago, we did a good job of totally destroying the infrastructure of Vietnam and Cambodia. 
Remember in the days of Nazi Germany, Dave, when there was like a block captain called a Gauleiter, like on every block in the neighborhood, the, the person that made sure everybody else was watching everybody else and turning everybody else in. And in Moscow or in, in communist Russia, you had the political commissars. You always had somebody on the block looking, mm-hmm, looking, sneaking. Mm-hmm. Well, there's scary news out no. of Utah. An anonymous group in Utah has leaked the personal info of 1,300 people it says are illegal immigrants. The list was sent to local media and state agencies and included a demand that all persons on it be deported immediately. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, the list included 31 social security numbers, the names and dates of birth of 201 children, and the due dates of six pregnant women, almost every surname is Latino. Now, wait a minute. Now, now, if they found the Social Security numbers, yeah. are, are, are they then saying these are fake? Probably, yes. Uh-huh. They probably aren't saying anything at all. They're probably saying these people look like illegals to me. I live on a street in Salt Lake where everybody is white, and I saw this person walking down the street, so they must be illegal. That's part of the brain well, I, Yeah, you could, I guess you could go around and sort of do a, be a census person and uh, hang out on the street corners where guys are looking for work and where the taqueria truck is, and you could hang out and sort of ask them, you know, uh, whether they're legal or illegal or not. And if they're not, not you put them in this little list and you turn them in anonymously. Yeah, yeah. Well, you yeah. know, in, in well, German, Only in Utah. Wait a minute. <laughs> it's, about, it's, yeah. about, it's about deporting or, or doing away with the not-me. In Germany, mm-hmm. the not-me was the Jew. In, in, in Russia, the not-me was the person who was uh, out of touch with history, the anti-Bolshevik, the reactionary, the, um, you know, the person trying to um, uh, destroy the system, the wrecker. Right? Yeah. Now yeah. it's basically the Latino. That's all you got to be is kind of brown and not, you know, not be driving around in a million dollar car and, and you're suspect. Well, what's scary is where all this personal information might have come from. And I suppose since this, uh, this letter was sent to all kinds of news media, it went to NPR. And I mean, nobody is going to sit down and publish this stuff or read these, these things in the first place. <laughs> you can't. Because uh, it's all personal information. Nobody should. It shouldn't be out there for anyone to see. The due dates of six pregnant women. What do they want to do with those mm. six pregnant women? Get them across the border before they have their anchor babies? Sure. Because otherwise, you know, you have to pay all these people. Well, as welfare. And my gosh, there's a, excuse me. I mean, that's the, the payments are going up and up and up. And my household insurance is costing me more. Stuff from the Huff. After a bill to reauthorize unemployment benefits for the long-term jobless failed uh, by just one vote, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid said all would be well as soon as the late Senator Robert Byrd could be replaced. Remember, they, they left for the 4th of July weekend, right? Wow, leaving the unemployed abandoned. Said Bird, we will vote on this measure again once there is a replacement, okay? Well, when will the replacement happen? Every week that passes, several hundred thousand people who've been out of work for longer than six months miss checks they expected to receive when they began drawing benefits. When the Senate returned after the 4th of July holiday, a holiday for them, perhaps not for the 2.1 million unemployed they abandoned, a week later, of course, it was 2.5 million people, and it's still climbing. 
Well, what are we going to do? West Virginia Governor Joe Manchin said he needs guidance from the state legislature about when to make an appointment to bird seat and when to hold a special election. He says it's possible by next week or the week after that that we can have a direction that the legislature is clarified and then I'll make an appointment. So, thanks to Manchin's self-serving temporizing, you see, he's the favorite to grab the seat in a special election and is searching diligently for a stooge he can appoint temporarily who wouldn't think of running against him. I suggest he nominate his dog, the way a Roman senator once nominated his horse. Anyway, when the U.S. Senate did convene after the 4th, right, there was only one senator from West Virginia, and everybody else remains in limbo. Yeah, well, when he does name his appointee, it's possible the Senate could approve the House-passed unemployment reauthorization and send it to the president within a week. And when the bill becomes law, people who miss checks will be paid retroactively. Unfortunately, 99ers, people who have exhausted all 99 weeks of checks available before the lapse, will continue to receive nothing. Waiting for Byrd's replacement or something like it, apparently, is an easier path forward than attempting to persuade Nebraska Blue Dog Democrat Ben Nelson to join his party and support the bill. I suspect that Ben Nelson is a crypto-Calvinist and believes in his teeny-weeny heart that the unemployed are lazy or have sinned in some way and God has turned his face from them. It would be only fitting if the voters of Nebraska turned their face from Blue Dog Ben and mooned the SOB out of office. I love it. Show them how you feel. Show them both cheeks. Spy Swap, only from Foxy Phone Apps, a reality peep show that puts you behind the lines in beauteous Hydrangea, New Jersey. Get your bust or six-pack implant and lets you find out for yourself the state secrets behind golf courses, McMansions, hedge funds, and all-American suburban sex. Hey, it's better than Siberia, right? But when the FBI kicks in your door, the real fun starts. Which family stays put on Elf Street, and which one flies visionaire to Guantanamo? <laughs> Spy Swap, tonight at 9, only on cable, Hulu, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and iPhone. And you can follow the families in exile on Google Maps. More tales of America as the world's policeman. And as Gilbert and Sullivan has told us, a policeman's law is not an happy one. Pressure has been on the Yemeni government, says CNN, to fight a growing al-Qaeda element, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which grabbed the attention of the West with the Christmas Day attempted bombing of a Northwest Airlines transatlantic flight as it landed in Detroit. There's got to be some reason for landing in Detroit. The suspect, Farouk Abdul Mutalab, who has pleaded not guilty to six federal terrorism charges, was reportedly trained and armed in Yemen. There is also increasing scrutiny of America's growing involvement. We're there and we're more than advisors. We handpicked the country's top fighters, said General Yawa Mohammed Abdullah As-Saleh. By the time they say his name, the guys are inside the compound. President Salah's nephew, who runs the elite counterterrorism unit, said that this is true. America is taking a further and deeper commitment to Yemeni security. But al-Qaeda is also stepping up its training in Yemen. (laughs) You get one, you get the other. Some counterterrorism experts warn that an influx of foreign fighters from the insurgencies in Afghanistan and Iraq is making the terrorist presence in Yemen much more resilient. 
Why am I not surprised? We're, we're training terrorists. We may not be running the camps, but we're creating the atmosphere that makes it possible for them to be, you know, really excited about the idea of running off to uh, behind God's back and learning how to make improvised explosive devices. What a life. You could become a plumber. No, I'm going to become an exploder. Al-Qaeda is using U.S. and British involvement in Yemen as propaganda to win over the support of locals and discredit the Yemeni government. There is also growing speculation of a more direct role in the fighting by the American military, but U.S. officials maintain they only provide intelligence and training to the Yemenis. In July, Amnesty International released photographs of U.S. cluster bombs uh, dropped on a rural Yemeni village in an anti-Al-Qaeda operation. Scores of women and children were reported to have been killed. This attack took place on December 17th, about a week before the Detroit attempted bombing. So this may have encouraged that man to come and try and bomb us in Detroit, just as all the droning in Pakistan. Uh, so says the guy that tried to bomb us in Times Square. Cluster bombs, mines, they have to be outlawed. Now, this is terror. This is state terror. Most Yemeni officials believe Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula numbers only a few hundred. Remember they told us in Afghanistan, there's only a hundred Al-Qaeda there and we're spending a billion ahead. How much are we going to be spending on these guys in Yemen? There was only a few hundred highly trained fighters living in rural areas where local tribes may provide shelter. Yeah. Yemeni society is not homogenous. There are lots of people who see the Yemeni-U.S. security cooperation as a horrible choice, said Mohammed al-Assadi, a former editor of the Yemen Observer. Others believe this kind of cooperation is acceptable as long as it is based on a win-win deal, which they feel is not the case. Whether the U.S. or U.K. troops are building the capacity of the Yemeni forces or directly are launching the air attacks, this kind of military cooperation is publicly unwelcome. Don't we get it? We're not wanted. We're not doing any good. We're not building any nation. We're just increasing our deficit, both our financial deficit and our moral deficit. For the Yemeni government, any evidence of foreign involvement in its campaign against al-Qaeda risks a backlash, a blowback. This is one of the most conservative of Arab countries where foreigners are often viewed with suspicion. Yeah, I think that's putting it lightly. The Western trainers pay a crucial role in helping confront al-Qaeda here, but in winning the war, the government risks losing, get ready, the hearts and minds of its people. Oh my, when are we ever going to learn? This is David Osman. I'm here on the road for Radio Free Oz, right here with international survival fashion designer Yves Zanstuhl. And, and for the first time, we're talking here right in his Paris atelier. Oui, David, and welcome to my electronic studio where I prepare now for my new show, Ce n'est pas une voile. Aha, uh-huh, and I understand that translates, this is not a veil. Now, now what is the inspiration behind the show? It's about David, you know, by the nouveau French uh, Bands of Burkalon. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, no one can wear clothing intended to hide the visage. Uh-huh. So, naturellement, I must rush to the head of the modest ladies of Paris with a line of digital head coverings. Digital? Now, tell me how that works. Well, I use the eye face application and project it from a tiny jewel in the nose, oh. the nails. Uh-huh. Take a look here at my model, Shahrazad. Well, well, I, I can see that this must be a person covered head to toe in black. There's no, no visage to be seen there. <laughs> Patience. Uh-huh. When I alert the eye face, from this handy tennis bracelet. Oh, 
There's a beautiful woman's face right, right there where the where the veil was. That is Catherine Deneuve. Oh, it's very inventive. Yes, she was. <laughs> now, there are dozens of multicultural faces a woman can choose from, plus the Salvador Dali style. Oh, well, that's, of course, a melty watch face. <laughs> and Rene Magritte. And right there it says, across where her eyes ought to be, this is not a veil. And that's the title of your show. <laughs> very tricky. Yes, tricky. I think it is. The sounds to survive fashion will outwit les flics, n'est-ce pas? <laughs> I hope but, so. But uh, one more thing to show yeah. you, David. Here are my deep depression heels in oiled sea turtle leather. Wow, wow, those are weird. You know, it is historical fashion fact that in the bad economic times, shoe heels become more elevated. Oh, huh? I did. I well, did now, know that. here is Eve's your heel, the tour d'affaire of shoes. Oh, but, but, but wait a second, Eve. Uh, these, sh- these shoes have no bottom. Neither does the economy. Oh, well, it's been another great visit with you, Eve, and uh, we're right here from Paris. This is David Osmond, back to Oz Central. Au revoir. Now it's time for the dishonor roll of the heartless and stupid. Take them away, maestro. Pennsylvania Attorney General Tom Corbett, who is running for governor, said that unemployed people are purposely avoiding jobs so they can continue collecting benefits from the government. He says the jobs are there, but if we keep extending unemployment, people are going to sit there and uh, I've literally had construction companies tell me I can't get people to come back to work until they say I'll come back to work when unemployment runs out. Rand Paul, the Republican nominee for Senator of Kentucky, said that the unemployed need to stop being so picky when it comes to getting a job. He says, as bad as it sounds, ultimately we do have to sometimes accept a wage that's less than we had at our previous job in order to get back to work and allow our economy to get started again. Nobody likes that, but it may be one of the tough love things that has to happen. Senator John Kyle said that unemployment benefits don't create new jobs. In fact, if anything, continuing to pay people unemployment compensation is a disincentive for them to seek new work. More recently, he called unemployment benefits unnecessary evil. South Carolina Lieutenant Governor Andre Bauer compared the unemployed to stray animals, saying that unemployment insurance is a lot like helping out strays. One is facilitating the problem. If you've given an animal or a person ample food supply, he said, they will reproduce, especially ones that don't think too much further than that. And so what you've got to do is you've got to curtail that type of behavior. They, they don't know any better. Flat-out lazy people would rather sit home and do nothing than do these jobs. And finally, Representative Dean Heller, a Republican of Nevada, said that he thinks that though there should be a federal safety net, extending unemployment benefits yet again raises the question, is the government now creating hobos? Yeah, I know it's bad out there, but sometimes I wonder, how bad does it get? Just... How mean-spirited, how, what can I say, not un-American, but how totally out of it can our representatives get? Well, two Republican congressmen are urging other countries, including potentially some where homosexuality is a crime punishable by death, to vote against an American-led effort in the U.N. to recognize a respected international gay rights group. My, oh, my. Of course, it's guys. 
You know, they're the ones that lead the anti-abortion campaign and shoot all the doctors. They're the ones who have got lots of time on their hands. I wish these Republican congressmen had more time on their hands by being voted soundly out of office. <laughs> Fondly to be wished. The International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission has been trying since May 2007 to win accreditation from the United Nations, which would allow the NGO to have a voice at the international body. But the group's application for consultative status has been deferred by the status-granting NGO committee until early last month, when the committee voted to block its application. Among the countries voting against the application, Egypt, Angola, Burundi, China, Pakistan, Qatar, Russia, and Sudan, in all of those countries, but Russia and China, LGBT people can be jailed, fined, whipped, or killed if they are caught by authorities. After last month's vote, Ambassador Susan Rice submitted a resolution to the Consul to consider the group's application directly, saying the organization's widely respected advocacy and research has given a voice to those who have long suffered in silence. But two Republicans, Representative Chris Smith of New Jersey and Trent Franks of Arizona, have written a letter to many of the other countries on the Consul urging them to vote against the resolution. They claim that the LGBT rights group is a threat to human rights rights, including freedom of religion. See, countries on the consul include places where homosexuality is illegal and punishable by imprisonment, whipping, or death. Saudi Arabia, Malaysia, Egypt, and Pakistan are the most famously harsh countries. Homosexuality is also illegal in Cameroon, Ghana, Morocco, Mauritius, St. Kitts, and Nevis, St. Lucia, and Zambia. I'm not going to spend my vacation in any of those places, even though I'm a straight-on hetero. IGLHRC's mission is focused on eliminating such laws, and they advocate against state sanctions violence based on sexual orientation. Makes perfectly good sense to me, but there's a couple of guys in Congress who see it very differently. Smith and Franks want to kill the U.S. motion to recognize IGLHRC. They say because the group never answered a question from the NGO committee about whether they would support the prosecution of a religious preacher for what he or she preaches against homosexuality. Sexuality. An IGLHRC spokesman said it's true her group has not answered that particular question because it was submitted in the last session of the committee. But, she said, the group has time and again affirmed that as a human rights organization, they support human rights, including freedom of religion and freedom of expression. You just heard the best of the best, and here's the Oz team that keeps it best. Peter Bergman, say moi. I'm your host, David Osman, your co-host. John Cumming does a little bit of electric here and a little bit of electric there. Phil Fountain, head of the design group. Tom Gedwillow, he's our web monger. Chaz Glass, man, he is finance. Dave Maloney does the sound. Bill McIntyre produces it, and Scott Wilde is our media guru. 